You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Good morning, guys. How are you? I'm doing well. My name is Todd, as Stan mentioned, and uh, we are in the middle of a series going through the book of Jude, a three-week series. Last week, Stan kicked us off, um, pointing out that first thing you need to know is that you're in a struggle. <laughs> he says the theme of the book is contend for the faith. It's the word struggle, agonize. You, know, you need to struggle. It's going to be work. It's going to be hard. So like getting up this morning, it's always helpful to know like Sunday mornings are going to be the worst. <laughs> like, I don't know, but if the, the least Christian time in our household is Sunday morning trying to get everybody into a car. <laughs> and so knowing that ahead of time is helpful. <laughs> so you don't have uh, you know, hopes that go dashed. But like, it's all going to go smooth and it's going to be fine. No, go into it knowing it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> and it helps it go, at least you're, you're ready for it, I guess. At the very least, it's still a struggle, though. You still pay the cost to get through it. Today, we're in the middle part of Jude. You can open up there. If you have your Bible Bible, which means like a book, <laughs> it's towards the end. Uh, it's the last, second to last book, so find Revelation, flip back one, and you have it. If it's an app, you can just search for it. So <laughs> Jude, J-U-D-E, Jude. Uh, we're going to be in uh, verses 5 through 16 this morning. So last week, it was important to know that we're in a struggle. This week, we're going to focus in on, if you're in a struggle, it's helpful to know what's your enemy trying to do. Like, what's the struggle about? What are they trying to accomplish? So this week, Jude really wants to zero in on what is the enemy trying to accomplish? What are they trying to do? And then next week, Luke will end the series with the last few verses saying, okay, then the last thing you want to know when you're in a struggle is that you're in one, what's the enemy trying to do, and then what's our strategy? What are we trying to accomplish? How are we fighting back? And so Luke will cover that next week. But today, we're going to focus in on knowing our enemy. If you're in a battle, knowing what your enemy is doing, who they are, is helpful. Um, just at Connection Group this past week, saw on Brock and Bridget's uh, side table, they were reading um, C.S. Lewis, Screw Tape Letters. Yeah, know your enemy. What's he up to? What's he trying to do? That's a good book if you want to get dialed into that. C.S. Lewis actually writing that book got really kind of sick, <laughs> kind of messed up. It's, when you start thinking about that too much, it kind of messes with you. But it's helpful for us to know, right, what the enemy is doing. Um, and so that's what we're zeroing in on this morning. So if you're in the book of Jude, this morning the way I'm going to try and organize this for us, a lot of material, so I'm going to try and punch through. <laughs> but we're going to organize it in terms of we're going to look at three tactics that the enemy uses so three things that they're trying to accomplish, three ways. And then we're going to look at three charges that God brings against these people. You can learn a lot. If, you, if all you knew, if you walked into a courtroom and heard the charges, you'd have, you could rewind the tape and figure out what this person did or what they were trying to pull off. So we're going to look at three tactics and three charges that God brings against these people. That's how we're going to try and organize it this morning to get through. So we're going to start with tactic one, all right? Right out of the gate, tactic one. They take advantage of our inattention. This is what our enemy is trying to do. Our enemy is trying to take advantage of the fact that we're not paying attention. So verse 4, I'm actually going to back up and use one of Stan's verses from last week. Verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They creep in unnoticed. You're like, well, if they creep in unnoticed, how did you notice? Like, how did you know that? <laughs> well, so Jude, is, Jude has the spirit of God. He's helping us see what we often miss, right? Jude sees what we don't. He sees what we lo- overlook. He's able to, by the spirit of God, see what's happening and look in and see, and see what we often overlook and miss. And that word, like, that translation crept in unnoticed is actually 
one Greek word, um, and it's, it's a combo word. It's a compound word, meaning enter alongside. So crept in unnoticed, it means that it can't come in by itself. Does that make sense? Like, like if you're trying to get into somewhere you shouldn't be, find a crowd of people who get access and then kind of get in the crowd, right? Like you find a way to get in there. You look like the people who are allowed. At my old job, um, we had to badge in. We had this like thing, you beeped and it opened the door. So they had this training about, you know, no tailgating. <laughs> so like essentially you could beep, open the door and then let anybody in you wanted to. Um, and so that's a problem for security. <laughs> you don't want to do that. So if you were trying to get into that building, you would find somebody like me, especially on a day where we had some group activity outside, like, oh, let's have a water balloon fight and camaraderie, and we all like our jobs, right? <laughs> and then when we all come back inside, the supervisor would beep and then open the door, and we'd all kind of shuttle in under his beep, right? Because we all have to get back to work. So if you were trying to sneak in, that would be the good time to do it, right? You, if you just kind of looked like you worked there, if you could just dress business casual, <laughs> you could probably fit in. That's what our enemy is trying to do. They don't want to ra- wave any flags and make themselves known. They're not trying to raise a fuss. They're not trying to show up on your radar. They want to go unnoticed. And so you have to know that. Like, you have to know they're trying to creep in. Like, that's a good translation, creep in or get in some kind of side door. Like, you want to get in without being noticed. And that's true for people trying to get into somewhere they shouldn't, but it's also true for ideas. Like, be careful what ideas you embrace because some of them come prepackaged. Like, they have things that just latch on. You know, like those little, like, pilot fish that, like, hang out with sharks? (laughs) You know, like, you've seen them, you're like, how does they get away with that? (laughs) Like, why doesn't he just turn around and eat them? Apparently, they eat the bacteria off them or something, and it's a beneficial relationship for both parties. But when you see a shark, you don't think, pilot fish. (laughs) You think, shark! (laughs) So if you're trying to get in somewhere, be a pilot fish. They they creep in. They they go unnoticed. They want to attach themselves to something that already has access. And so that's true of people who are trying to get into the body of Christ. They... They kind of try to blend in, but it's also true of ideas. It, stuff latches on to ideas, and so that's why in Scripture it says to be careful to test all things, to keep what's good and toss the bad. Like just Christians need to be a thinking people. You need to be discerning. You need to think through ideas. You need to think through things and not just embrace everything that just comes through your door because they're trying to get in without you noticing. That's their plan. So you have to pay attention. So the way we fight back against that one, we have to pay attention. So tactic two we're going to look at, they convince us to settle for close enough. That's one of their main tactics. It's really not something they're trying to do to us, but something they're trying to convince us to do, to settle for close enough. Look at verses five and six. It says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So he gives two examples here. Israel. We just went through the book of Exodus this spring. If you weren't here with us then, go back online and listen to those sermons. Going through the book of Exodus was a lot of fun. What we learned about how God saved a people out of Egypt. And if we kept reading in Numbers and if we kept following the, the scripture out, you'd see most of those people die in the wilderness. Most of the people who walked through the water died in the wilderness because they didn't believe. They were in, they were here, they went to church, but they weren't really in. They were part of the group, but they weren't really in. They didn't believe. 
just being, they, they basically believe that they settled for close enough. We're in the right crowd. Israel is the right team to be on. We're part of that team. I have the Israel jersey. But I don't really like, I'm not really bought into Israel's God. Like, I'm, I like being associated with him because it means we win. <laughs> we get the pennant, we get the banners, you know, in our auditorium. But I'm not really in. And so one of the tactics the enemy wants to use is for you to be here this morning, but to not really be here. He wants you to be here and think that that's what counts. I, I, what else do you want, God? I'm here. I got up. I got my kids ready. That was hard. But I'm here. Like, that's what counts, right? That's check. I, I read my Bible. I did the thing. I even made it through in a year. I didn't fall off track. I did it. Check. One of the strategies the enemy uses is getting you to get warm to the fact of, like, maybe if I'm just here, that's what God wants for me. Just showing up. Just being around God's people is what he wants. Another example he uses is angels. Angels who were made by God, who lived in heaven, and then abandoned their proper position. They're like, eh. <laughs> Satan, pro- Satan proposes a different plan of attack. Maybe I should be God. Maybe, maybe I could run. The- if, I- if I was in charge, I'd do things differently. You ever have that thought? You ever have that idea like, man, God, what are you doing? I look around. If I was in charge, I'd run things differently. And by saying that, you're meaning that you would do it better. (laughs) Like, you mean, God, what's your deal? (laughs) Like, stuff is going crazy. I could do a better job than you. That was what took place in the heart of the angels. We know them as demons. (laughs) Demons who abandoned their post. They left where they were supposed to be. And so the strategy there was believing that because you were in the right place at one point, now you're kind of free to roam about the cabin. You know, it's like you were buckled in during takeoff, but now the captain said, you're free to roam about. So now you're just like, woo, all around the plane. I was where I needed to be at the right time, but now that we're past that, I'm good to go. Believe me, like I was baptized as a kid. I did the altar call thing. I'm in, I'm good. I'm free to roam about the country. Do whatever I want. The, the enemy wants you to believe that because of some past obedience, your present disobedience is just, indifferent. To put your confidence in the fact that one, well, when I was 12, I said, when I was 16, when I was, when I was always looking back to something you did, and that's your confidence that you're in. Not now, not because I currently love Jesus, because I currently am pursuing him hard, but because at some point in the past, I did something, and that's my confidence. So the enemy wants you to believe either being here and not really being here is what counts, or that at one point I did something, and that's what counts. So now I'm kind of free because I'm in. I'm called and kept because I did something a while ago, and now I'm just kind of free to do whatever I want. But salvation isn't horseshoes or hand grenades. <laughs> Close enough does not count. Look at, look at, did you fail to notice what he says about what, like in Jesus, like get your mind around this, Jesus. So Jude is talking about his brother, the one that I ate Cheerios with, saved my people out of Egypt. Like, what a mind blow for Jude to be like, I grew up with God who saved my people thousands of years ago out of Pharaoh's hand. But look what he says. Jesus, who saved a people out of land, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed the ones who didn't believe. The same Jesus who saved destroys. The same Jesus. He's a savior and a destroyer. He's both of those things. And look at the angels who, didn't, who abandoned it. He's kept them in eternal chains I mean, I don't know how many ways he can say it, under gloomy darkness until judgment. (laughs) Like, he's trying to emphasize, 
a point here that Jesus knows if you're not really here this morning. He knows. He's not unaware of what's going on. You can't creep in unnoticed past him. He understands what's going on, and the enemy can't either. So take heart. He knows who the bad guys are, and he knows how to handle his business. He knows what to do, and he knows that close isn't close enough. And he's made that abundantly clear. Judah saying, I want to remind you, though you once understood this, apparently you've forgotten it, I want you to remember, think it through. Is close enough good enough? Is close enough? It's like I'm kind of in the realm of Christianity, but I don't actually believe. Is that good enough? Will that count? He's made it clear it doesn't, and he's demonstrated by judging it in the past. He hasn't been unclear about how he feels about that strategy of our enemy, which is why our enemy keeps going back to it. And he even says, like in verse 7, he's like, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursuit on natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Nobody thinks that Sodom and Gomorrah is in, right? Nobody thinks those were God-fearing people. <laughs> Nobody thought that. Nobody believes that. They were, they were just following their own desires, running it out to its fullest extent. And yet they lived in a land that was blessed. When given the chance to choose, Lot was like, I'll choose Sodom and Gomorrah because it's lush. It's, it's full of fruit. It's a very nice place to live. And at one point, the whole city gets carried away by some kings, and Abraham comes with his little army of 300 discipled guys and takes them out. They've been rescued. They live in a beautiful land, and they turn into cats. You know, like, I don't know if you've heard that before. You know, dogs are like, you feed me, you love me, you take care of me. You must be God. Cats, on the other hand, <laughs> you feed me, you love me, you take care of me. I must be God. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah is like, you've blessed me, you've rescued me. I must be what it's all about. Everywhere I look, it's like turning up roses for me. So God must really be in love with me. Maybe it's all about me. And so they just make everything about them. Nobody thought that they were in God. They, never, they didn't claim to be, didn't want to be. Abraham at one point says, if I can find 10 people in the city, will you spare it? And God's like, sure. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because he couldn't find 10 people in the whole city. If he had found 10 they would have been safe. Couldn't find 10. So the whole city goes down. Like, that's how bad Sodom and Gomorrah was. So nobody's thinking that they deserve to be in. They didn't want to be in, didn't claim to be in. Jesus says, when you treat me half-heartedly, when you treat me like close is close enough, it's just like that. I don't see it any differently. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah had fire that came down from heaven, which is just a preview of the fire that is currently for them, which is what he says, eternal fire. It started, their life ended in flames, and it just continues in flames. It's the same thing. I see it the same way. Playing horseshoes with me is the same thing as just being totally opposed to me. And he wants you to know that, but the enemy doesn't. <laughs> the enemy wants you to settle for that or to fall for that lie. And even like we see, we'll move on to verse 8. The people, that's, so that's back in the day. The current people are trying the same thing. Look, it says, yet in like manner, these people also. He's just saying, I want you to remember, because, like, run it out. We've seen this happen before. But these people are doing the exact same thing. These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, 
but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So here's tactic number three. They convince us that we're the exception to the rule. You ever done that? I've done that. Like where you're just like, I know this is how it plays out, but it'll be different for me this time. (laughs) It's never different. (laughs) It's always the same. That's why there are rules. (laughs) Like, sure, there are exceptions to the rules, but you're probably not. (laughs) Like, because it's a rule (laughs) and it applies for the most part. They want you to think like, yeah, that's how it typically plays out, but I'm going to show up half-hearted and God's going to be like, you know what? I just, you're so cute. <laughs> you know, like, like that's, you just, that's your strategy. <laughs> that's your strategy. So I'm going to show up, and I know how, how you handled this in the past, but I mean, I, it's going to go differently for me. I mean, look at me. I mean, I don't know. I dressed up today, you know? <laughs> Come on. Like, and I don't know if you say, like, when you see repetition in the Bible, when you see words going over and over and over again, it, it's a clue to pay attention to that. So I don't know if you saw in the section, if you heard the word that was over and over, it's the word blasphemy or blasphemous. That's a word we only say at church, right? You know, last time you were at work and somebody sent an email, like, just a reminder, no blasphemy around the office. <laughs> You're like, what? Uh, so blasphemy, let me help you key into what this is. The, the Greek on this, I think, is super helpful. It's, it comes from two words as well, but it's blacks, fame, which is just whatever, that's Greek. But the words mean sluggish to fame. So the word blasphemy literally means like you're slow to call good things good. Like you're slow. Like it's good. It's clearly good. But you're kind of like, you have reservations about just putting your stamp on it. Like you're slow. You won't like just agree. Like God is good. You're like, most of the time. Good. I mean, it depends how you find good. What is what is good? Like you just dance around it. You're slow to call good things good, which conversely means, like a lot of times we use this, it means you're quick to call bad things good. Like that's the way we typically hear it, right? When you blaspheme things, like, like that's how we typically hear it. The word literally means slow to call good things good, but the converse is true. Quick, you rush to call bad things good. You have zero hesitation whatsoever. Good, good, good. You just label it good right away, even though it's bad. You're quick to do that. And so we see that word appear three times in this section. So I want to zero in on it because I think this tactic three of convincing us we're the exception to the rule, they use blasphemy. They, they put this in us, this sin that we commit to do it. So when we're slow to call good things good, we rely on our imaginations. Did you see that? He said we rely on their dreams, verse eight. That's how they, when you don't just accept what God says, the next best thing is what do I think is good? What, do I, what are my dreams? What does my head tell me is good? And that's going to be the standard I use. Whatever I imagine will be what I think is best. And so it's no wonder that God's second commandment is that you shall not make an image, image, imagination. You shall not make an image that takes the place of God. Because whenever you break the first commandment, you always break the second one. Whenever you don't, like the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm Yahweh. I rescued you. Me, God, only. Whenever you reject that, you immediately, because of the way he's created us, we are worshiping creatures. We replace it. We find something else to worship. So we turn to our imagination. Well, what else would be good then? If I don't like Yahweh, I don't like the way that he runs things, what do I think is best? So we immediately break the second command. We turn to our imaginations. We rely on our dreams, whatever we think is best. And the enemy knows that, and so he's urging us to do that. 
Zach, just go with what you think is best. You do you, friendo. <laughs> It'll probably be okay. <laughs> It'll probably be okay. Look at uh, Proverbs 16.25. Is that how it works out, though? <laughs> there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way to death. You want to die and be separated from God and have a life of pain and destruction everywhere you go? Just do what you think is best. Rely on no one but yourself. Be your own boss. Be autonomous. Which is usually like considered a positive word in our world, autonomous, but it literally means like auto-law, like self-governing. Like you have no one above you. No one gets to tell you what to do. You are your own boss. So if you want to just roll with what you think is best, the Bible is telling you it does not end well for you, friendo. <laughs> it doesn't go the way that you think it's going to. The one who made you knows a little bit more about the way things work, it turns out, than you do. And so the second part of this blasphemy thing, convincing us that we're the exception to the rule, like I said, is we're quick to call bad things good, right? We're slow to call good things good, quick to call bad things good. You see that in verse 10 where he says, like unreasoning animals, they understand these things instinctively. We just roll with our instincts. So if you're, when you do that, we just roll with whatever instinctually feels good. So not just your head, but like your guts. You know, like whatever just seems right. And like, and when we're making a pro-con list, feels good is always going to be a pro, <laughs> right? I mean, like it's always a pro. Like you might have cons that like overweigh why you shouldn't do the thing that feels good, but feels good is always a pro, right? Does anybody ever put feels good on the con list? I don't typically, you know, <laughs> like pint of ice cream, good. <laughs> like it feels good. Like are there cons? Like don't eat a whole, yeah, pint. Yeah, there's reasons to outweigh that, but it's always going to be a pro, anything that just feels good. And we see this. Uh, I have one verse that just demonstrates this from the New Testament, Philippians 3. Look what Paul says. He's like, many of whom I've often told you now, or often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. We're, we're talking about knowing your enemy. <clears throat> walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Whatever my guts tell me to do is God. My belly drives me. Whatever feels good is the decision. There are, it doesn't matter. I don't consider cons. If there's a pro, feels good, that's what I'm going to go with. Whatever feels good is good. When we reject God's standard, when we turn away from him, we're slow to call his things good. We're quick to call bad things good. We turn to our imaginations. We turn to our bellies, and we let them drive. And it says their end is destruction. He hasn't been unclear about how that way ends, but our enemy wants to convince us that we're the exception to that rule. I can follow my belly and have it turn out differently. I can imagine a Jesus who looks more like I want him to look, and it still ends fine for me. Let's turn now to three charges that he makes. Those are the three tactics, right? You got those written down. So now we're going to move to three charges that he brings against the enemy. And he starts that by, in verse 11, he says, woe to them. Woe, like he's pronouncing judgment. Woe to them. For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. So everybody knows what those are, right? <laughs> so I don't even need to bring that up. <clears throat> I'm guessing you don't. <laughs> I will be happy to tell you. Um, he uh, is giving three examples here of charge one. You've ignored my warning. I've tried to tell you. I'm trying to tell you. Don't do this. Stop. Caution whatever the road closed. (laughs) 
I've tried to warn you, he gives three examples of people who didn't listen to the signs. And he says, Cain, we'll blitz through these. So Cain is the son of Adam and Eve, brothers Abel. God says, bring a blood sacrifice for your sins. Abel is a herder, has animals available, brings an animal, sacrifices it. God says, Abel, awesome. Cain is a farmer, brings a fruit basket, and God's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I said blood sacrifice. Last time I checked, <laughs> cucumbers don't bleed. <clears throat> and then he even has this conversation with Cain. He's like, Cain, do what's right. Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to devour you. I haven't been unclear. I haven't given you something that's too hard for you to do. You know exactly what to do. I've told you clearly. Blood sacrifice. I've told you. You, you have a brother who has them. I mean, he's a good guy from what I can tell. <laughs> Be happy to let you have one. Cain's like, no, fruit basket. <laughs> he just walks right past the warning sign. And so God banishes him from the family of God and just sends him out along his way. Balaam is a prophet who God's given the ability to speak the words of God, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, people who see visions and are able to tell us what God is saying. But yet he wants to turn that for financial gain. He's like, well, this, you know, being God's messenger is fine and all, but there's not a lot of money in it. And then so some guy comes along and says, hey, I'll pay you to curse Israel. He's like, oh, that sounds really good because <laughs> money's good, but I can't because I can only say what God tells me to say, but we'll go and we'll see what happens. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with the story at all, but he's riding a donkey, and at some point, an angel shows up with a sword, and the donkey's like, whoa. <laughs> and so the donkey swerves and, like, smashes his leg against the wall, and he whips him, and then he smashes him again, and he's like, you idiot donkey, you know, like, or probably used the word for actual donkey, which <laughs> would have been fitting. Um, it never had it been such an accurate use of the word. <laughs> and... Uh, and the donkey talks and is like, hey, bro, there's an angel. So I'm <laughs> just trying to save your life. <laughs> and Balaam just like, you know, responds to the donkey because that's not shocking enough that the donkey's talking to him. He's like, well, I think it's fine, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So the don- <laughs> God uses a donkey to try and restrain the madness of this guy. He's like, don't do it, man. Like, even the donkey is like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> He just powers through, though, and he says he ends up finding a loophole. He's like, you know what? Okay, I can't curse Israel, but I know that God hates sexual morality, so what you should do is send your women in there, have them dress a certain way, have them act a certain way. They will start interacting, then God will curse them for you. Pay me. Got it. Like, I troubleshoot. Like, I, I'm the IT guy. I know how to fix this thing, you know? Like, I, I troubleshoot it. Shot. I troubleshot that. <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, but so he found a loophole because his desire was money, not to honor God. He didn't want to say what God wanted to say. He wanted to find a way, but he walked right past the warning sign. And then Korah is a guy who's like, hey, I'm related to Levi too. Why can't I be high priest? And God's like, well, because I picked Aaron and Moses, so just kind of deal with it. I mean, how many high priests do you think we can have? <laughs> I mean, at some point, like, if you're both high priests, it really kind of cancels each other out at some point. It's like, we're all high priests. Well, if we're all high priests, then nobody's the high priest, right? But Moses says to him, Korah, you've gone too far. He says to him, point blank, you've gone too far. Korah shows up the next day with his incense thing, like, nope, God's going to pick me. I'm pretty sure of it. God opens up the earth and swallows Korah and his whole family. And then it closes back up over him, and they're never heard or seen from ever again. God warned, I, I, you've gone too far, Korah. Don't do this. This is craziness. Nah, 
We'll see who God picks. I've told you who I pick. In all three examples of blood sacrifice, God has chosen Jesus. He's chosen the way he's told him. He hasn't been unclear about it. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's told you that. He's told you what his word is by giving it to us. We have it in a Bible. We know what it is. We don't have to wonder, well, are there books missing? You know, like, like uh, here he's even quoting stuff from outside scripture. He's quoting the book of Enoch, and he's quoting. He's not pretending those are scriptures. He's just referring to stories that everybody would know. We're not missing the book of Enoch in our Bible. Like the same way that I can refer to C.S. Lewis, and now you're not like, well, where's first C.S. Lewis in my Bible? <laughs> Like, I can refer to it because we know we can just refer to the screw tape letters and without, now it's like, well, now it's part of the Bible, I guess, because I said it from stage. <laughs> and then Korah, God has chosen his man. He's chosen his high priest. Like, just submit to him and be happy that you have one who submits to God on your behalf. Charge two, you've prevented others from being warned. So it's bad enough, like, kids blow past the stop sign. But I heard a story recently of some kids who were like, you know, what would be really funny is we took the stop sign down. Later that night, a couple of their friends from the same high school, no stop sign, I don't know, just drive, 18-wheeler, three of their friends are dead. It's bad enough for you to ignore the stop sign, but removing it so that other people aren't warned is a whole separate charge. You understand that? Like, it's a charge. You personally ignored me. That's against you. I'm also holding those three kids against you. Those, Those teenagers are on trial for that. Like, you don't get to just walk away from like, whoa. You're, it's your fault. They should have known to stop. You didn't even give them the chance to reject what you did. You made it impossible for them. And he rattles off this list <clears throat> in verse 12 through 13 where he says, These are hidden reefs that your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hidden reefs, like you're trying to drive a ship and there's this thing under there that's going to rip your ship apart and you're going to sink and nobody even knows it. Waterless clouds, they promise good things. Look, clouds, rain, my garden, yay. Then they just blow past, nothing happens, and no rain. Wild waves, wandering stars. It's like people back then, they would use stars to actually figure out, we didn't have GPS. They didn't just pull up their phone and be like, oh, it looks like Nazareth is over there, I guess. <laughs> like, you had to look up <laughs> and figure out where to go. And you'd look up, and sometimes you'd miscalculate because you'd see a planet. But planets move. <laughs> you know, like, they don't stay stationary the way stars do. Or you'd find a comet or something. You'd be like, let's follow that thing. <laughs> and you, like, end up all over the place. He's saying, that's what you're like. That's what they're trying. That's the charge I bring against you. You are misleading people. They put their hope in you. They put their trust in you, and they show up, and you're a tree, you're an apple tree, and there's no apples, and you're actually tipped over sideways. You're like, well, there's definitely no apples, because <laughs> not only is it not producing in autumn when they're supposed to, but it's actually uprooted altogether. You are dangerously misleading people. Charge three, the last one we'll look at. You've acted, and this may be the most serious one of all. You've acted like I don't matter. You've made me a small thing. You've treated me like I don't matter, like contempt. Like, people that get charged with contempt of court, they get thrown out because they act like the judge doesn't have the right to tell them to do stuff. That's a charge. That's a charge in itself that you would treat God that way. You'd be like, it's, it's a matter of indifference if I get around to it. Yeah, sure, I hear all this stuff. I know I'm probably supposed to be more into this than I am, and I hear you about attending, and I hear you about the past confidence and baptism, blah, blah, blah. but I mean, who has the time? I got stuff going on. I mean, it's, 
there's, my priority list starts with other things. And like, you're fifth on the depth chart, God. I mean, if I get around to you, I will. But for now, my money goes where I want it to, and my calendar looks like I want it to, and my bedroom looks like what I want to, because who has the time? You've treated me like I don't matter, which would be bad enough like if you were like Sodom and Gomorrah and just rejected me altogether, but it's worse, isn't it, when it's somebody who kind of acts like, when it's somebody who pretends like they love you, but it was really kind of indifferent. Like, why are you even here? Why are you even pretending? It's, it's more hurtful to me that you would even do that. Like, at least Sodom and Gomorrah, I get it. You don't want anything to do with me, but this pretending to want something to do with me, and yet the whole time just treating me like I don't matter. Like, you don't call, you don't listen, you don't take my calls, you just ghost me, you know? <laughs> like, you're doing that to God. Like, you're treating me like something that's so small. And I made you. I made everything that you've ever looked at, consumed, enjoyed. I made it all, and you treat me like I'm nothing. And we see that in those verses 14 through 16, which will end our day. It was also about these that Enoch, he's quoting some book, he's quoting some story from outside of scripture. The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So if repetition is the key, then you've heard the word, right? Ungodly. It was in verse 4. It appears four times in these verses, and then it'll appear one more time in Luke's passage next week. Ungodly. The word literally is a negation of a word. So it's like darkness. Darkness isn't a thing. Light is a thing. If you take light away, darkness happens. The word is revere, respect, honor. And then you take an A and put it in front of it, and you just cancel it out. So it's like A sabamai would be the Greek. So it's like it just negates it. It just takes it away. It just takes the respect right away. Do you see how that works? Like it's like there's some respect. It's worse than disrespect. It's just like removing it altogether. Like, eh, God, indifferent. I mean, ugh. I'll go to church. I mean, but I'm not going to do anything more than that. Ungodliness is the charge he brings against those who are fighting against him. Like, you just don't treat me like I matter. And that ultimately drives all this other stuff. If you acted like I mattered, it would look differently. So if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what hope do ungodly people have? Because if I'm honest, I've done some of that stuff. I've done some of those things, right? Like, I've ignored God at times. I've, I've made decisions where I treated him like he didn't matter. I've settled for close enough. I've done those things. You maybe heard the phrase, we have, we have met the enemy and he is us. <laughs> it's like, I came in here looking to hear about the enemy so we could get riled up and throw down. But now I'm learning, it's like, man, I look a lot like the people we're trying to fight. So is there any hope for ungodly people? Because there's clearly an end of destruction for them if they continue in that. One last verse, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ungodly people. Jesus died for ungodly people. He didn't wait for the A-team. He didn't pick 
the people that were crushing it, he looked down and saw a world full of ungodly people. He didn't wait for them to get better. Like, you see what he's saying? Like, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I have a short list of people I would be willing to die for. <laughs> people I would consider worth that. Does that make sense? Like, I have people who I love enough, like my wife and my kids, that I would, that's not even a question. But after that, the list is pretty short. I wouldn't even consider dying for some, some people. Like, it wouldn't even cross my mind. And that list starts with the best that I can imagine. And when you get down to the bottom of the list, the people who I clearly think are the worst human beings alive, it would never cross my mind to die for them. But God shows his love for us in that he died for ungodly people. He, he knows better than you do how bad you are. He knows, and he chose to die. So there's hope for ungodly. If you find yourself listening, if your charges, or those could be brought against you this morning, there is hope for you, an ungodly person, to be found in Christ and be counted as godly because of his godliness on your behalf. Jesus died for ungodly people. So we're going to transition into a time of communion now where we respond to the message. What do we do with this? So if you have been distracted like me and maybe let in some ideas that you shouldn't have because stuff came along with it that you just accepted and weren't on guard, you weren't attentive, if you've been settling for close enough in your personal life, maybe you Maybe that's you. When you heard that, you're like, that's me. I've been settling for close enough. I haven't been giving it my all. I know it. God knows it. I've been relying on past performance, being like, yeah, that covers my current disobedience. You've been acting like you're the exception to the rule. Like, yeah, God, I know what you say, but you've been ignoring his warnings. You've had clear warnings, including the one this morning. You've heard it. You've been warned, and you just continue to, you've been walking past that. And by doing so, people around you are seeing you do that, and you're causing them to stumble. Make no mistake about it. That is held against you. The fact that people look at you and see others just walking off the cliff, and they see you doing it, and they're like, well, I don't know, it can't be that bad. That's held against you. And if you've been living like God isn't all that important, this morning is your chance to repent and understand that Jesus died for ungodly people just like you, just like people who've done all of those things. So we come we receive his body on our behalf and we say, my body has done stupid, sinful, ungodly things. I want your body to count for me, not mine. I want your blood to count for mine because the blood that's pumping through my veins has just caused me to, my belly, my desires, my imaginations don't, don't lean God-wise. Yours does. Every ounce of your blood was perfect and it never failed. I want that blood to count for me. I want that to cover mine. And Jesus promises anybody who receives him will be saved. The ungodly can become godly in his sight by receiving him. So when the band starts playing, make your way up. If that is your heart, if that is what you want, if you've done that before and it's the millionth time you've done it, remind yourself again of why we're doing this. If it's the first time ever, receive him. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and then receive him into you. Have him change everything that was true about you and have him come from outside and make you brand new so that we can love him and worship him and respond to him in a brand new way. And Luke will we'll get into that next week. How do we, as new creatures, new creations, fight back? What are we supposed to do in a positive sense? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it's truth, that it drives us. It tells us what's good. Help us to be faster, to agree with what you say is good. Please forgive us for our blasphemy, that we are so slow just to call it good. Like we read your word and we always have some excuse or some 
conversation or some sluggishness about us and just forgive us for that. Make us fast to agree with what's good and please forgive us for our quickness to just rubber stamp evil things because that feels good always seems good. And Lord, uh, we need discernment. We need patience. We need to wait. We need to confer with you instead of just going on our imaginations and our bellies and letting them drive our lives. Forgive us for that. Give us new hearts, new minds that want to do what you want us to do. And that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would help us do those things. Forgive us when we fall short and give us new hope and new mercies every day to continue going forward. Help us to receive this communion this morning, receiving you, everything you've done for us, ungodly people, confessing that that's who I am. I'm ungodly. You are perfect. And you died for me. You're mine, and now I'm yours, and I follow you with my whole heart.